Hey, it's your host, Kamea, and you're listening to Green Dreamer, a community-powered podcast. To be honest, we need more listener donations to be able to keep this show alive because, as you can see, we no longer do product advertisements, and we really want to keep it this way because we don't want to sell you things you don't need. And more importantly, we knew we needed to shed the incentive of appealing to corporate sponsors so that we can maintain our very critical lenses and continue to question a lot of mainstream ideas and big green narratives. And if every listener chipped in just $2 a month, we would meet our fundraising goal in no time. So join us today to be a co-creator of Green Dreamer at greendreamer.com support or at patreon.com greendreamer. English embeds certain things just by virtue of its structure, right? Like it's a very thingifying language. It's very noun heavy. And most of the indigenous languages that I know of are very relational. They're very verb heavy. And so it's just a, it's a fundamentally different way of relating to the world and to community. And so if what you're seeing as indigenous literature is all in English, then I think you're missing a really significant reality in terms of indigenous forms of expression. Today, we're speaking with Daniel Heath Justice, a Colorado-born citizen of the Cherokee Nation. He works on Musqueam Territory at the University of British Columbia, where he is Professor of Critical Indigenous Studies and English and holds the Canada Research Chair in Indigenous Literature and Expressive Culture. A literary scholar, fantasy novelist, and cultural historian, his critical and creative work considers indigenous kinship, sexuality, speculative fiction, and other-than-human relations. I was raised in a little mining town in Colorado called Victor, Colorado. My dad was a citizen of the Cherokee Nation, and I'm a citizen of the Cherokee Nation. And my mom was of mixed settler heritage, and I'm the fourth generation of her family to be raised there. When I was younger, I was pretty, I think, restless about living there and, and being where we grew up. We were the only indigenous family that I know of in the area. And so I I was raised outside of community. So I didn't really have a, a lot of context. And my dad was also raised outside of community. My grandmother was the last member of my family who grew up in Cherokee Nation reservation boundaries. And so it wasn't until I went to university that I started to really have a sense of the way our family history had informed and impacted who we were. And so going into Indigenous studies was in part just to kind of reconnect with my dad's family and my where my dad came from and, and all of the things that kind of led us to, to that place, but also just to kind of understand the complicated nature of a lot of people's lives and and upbringing and just as I think it started off as a way of of understanding my immediate family but then very much grew into a larger commitment to Cherokee concerns more broadly so yeah I think that that probably gives a little bit of the context thank you I appreciate you sharing that from your teaching philosophy you share 
Whether we abandon the stories around us, fully embrace them, merely suffer their effects, or actively imagine other stories in their place, we must recognize their existence and power. When we do so, we have the opportunity to choose our response rather than to surrender our intellectual and ethical sovereignty to circumstance, end quote. To sort of highlight the significance of this whole conversation about literature, really, what do you see as the value in being able to recognize the power and the non-neutral and non-objective nature of all of the stories that we're exposed to, intentionally or not? And what would it mean to reclaim our intellectual and ethical sovereignty from circumstance? Oh, I mean, it's a big question, right? And so much of my work is really just kind of exploring all of that, the kind of implications of that. But I think primarily for me, it's to understand that we all are embedded in a constellation of meaning. And that's often realized through through story. And I think in a lot of cases, we just we just accept the stories we hear. You know, the stories we hear about who we are, who our family is, where we're from, what our community is, what our country or nation or, or affinity group might be. You know, and it makes sense that in a lot of ways we just kind of accept that because we're raised up to, to see certain things as being normative. But it's really important, I think, if we're going to have any sort of role to play in our lives and in the world, to start to interrogate what those stories mean, or to reach deeper, to actually have an active role in understanding how those stories came to be, how they work in the world. You know, some stories are actually really generous and generative, and they bring out the best of us. And then some stories really limit our possibilities. Either we kind of pull inward because what we know to be our existence isn't reflected in things that the people around us value, or the stories that we tell kind of reflect uglier views of the world and other people in it. So I think we it's really important that we start to be really mindful about the stories that we accept and to really challenge the stories so that we have some understanding of their complexity, but also some understanding of our responsibility in the world and how we care for those stories going forward. It's not an easy thing. And I think it's it's especially hard when we start to question things that were kind of given as inevitabilities or that were given to us as an unquestioned good. But I think it's really important, especially once we start to encounter other people who may have very different stories from ours, that we live in very complicated relationships with one another. And we're embedded in really complicated histories. And the biggest danger is to try to reduce those complexities to to simple narratives, because I think that it's in the complexities that our humanity is most finely rendered. And once we start flattening that out, I think a lot of damage comes as a result. Mm. Well, on our show, we really maintain a curiosity to peel back the curtains and to really question norms and question everything. And I know that has been your approach and your work and the impact of your work as well. So I'm excited to see where else we take this conversation. And through your teachings, writing, and learnings, 
I know you often come across certain presumptions or misconceptions people have about Indigenous literature when the topic is raised. And I'm sure we'll dive deeper into some of these more specifically later. But right off the bat, what are some of the most common misunderstandings or lack of understandings of Indigenous literature in public discourses that you found yourself having to push back on and unravel again and again? Well, I think the biggest one is that a lot of people just they don't believe there is such a thing or that it's only a contemporary literary form rather than understanding that indigenous literatures have really deep and long and diverse histories. So for me, that's, that's the big one is just to, I mean, how many times it's not as common now, actually, especially in here in Canada, but for a very long time, I would meet somebody, a stranger, you know, you're, on the plane talking to the person next to you and they say, what do you do for a living? And I say, I teach indigenous literatures. And they're like, do they even have literature? And I'm like, oh, <laughs> where do we start? <laughs> and so it's a, it's a really, that I think has always been the biggest challenge is just this, this fundamental presumption of indigenous erasure, not just kind of in everyday life, but also in terms of our intellectual and artistic productions, or the idea that it only started existing as a result of colonization, or that it only started existing as a result of the Native American Renaissance in the 1960s, or whatever. Like Those assumptions always being that we couldn't have had a literary archive of our own. It could only come as a result of the impositions of Euro-Western culture. And I think yeah, we absolutely have a really rich and vibrant literature that is in English and that comes out of other sorts of literary movements. But that builds on an existing body of work that is very ancient and well predates European colonization. Yeah, and that sort of indigenous erasure, that presumption, I think is also reflective of the indigenous erasure in the broader mainstream media landscape and education as well. And we have explored with various scholars and cultural critics here, the political nature of education and media. And libraries, as you name it, an ideological structure is also an extension of and tethered to both education and media. And similar to how some people might initially think about these two worlds, There can be a naive perspective that libraries are these neutral spaces just providing resources and literature to the public or whoever their intended audience is. How would you invite us to think about the politics and organizational logic of this structure of knowledge and story curation tied to education, of course, and the larger cultural impacts that this could have had? You know, it's interesting because I I have a complicated relationship with, with all of these institutions. On the one hand, they're deeply colonial, no question, right? I think it's any time you have sites where knowledge is supposed to be embedded, it, they're always going to be contested locations. And they're always going to privilege certain kinds of knowledge over others. That said... I'm a huge book nerd and I'm a huge library booster. And, you know, if I hadn't gone into academia, I I very well may have gone into being a librarian. Of course, my idea of being a librarian isn't necessarily what it is today. Um, I was all about the books, not the other media, but, and I, I, 
I know so many other indigenous people for whom that's the same thing. You know, libraries were difficult places, but they were also places that offered a lot of imaginative freedom, even within very constrained circumstances. So I think I'm not a a believer in discarding these spaces or in presuming that they are so that they're so vexed that there's not important things there as well. But I do think we have to we have to interrogate what they are and what they do. And libraries are still one of the few places in our society where it actually still has a a commitment to providing access to information to a wide population. Yes, and we know some of that information is very limited in terms of you know the kinds of knowledge that it shares, but I think they still do some important things and they have still been really important sites of liberation for imaginative liberation for a lot of folks. So I these are the kind of complexities I think that we we have to take up. How do we make these places more accessible? in all the best ways, but also realizing that they are limited and not all important knowledge is going to be found at the library. And some libraries are still going to be very much wedded to a Dewey Decimal kind of taxonomy that is so rooted in colonialism and racism, whereas others are really trying to push outside of that and trying to bring other ways of of understanding how knowledge can be shared and also kind of what are what is our accountability and making sure that we're not extracting knowledge from people because not everything should be readily available and we also know that some of the the philosophies that have informed the creation of libraries are also some of the philosophies that informed the creation of museums and archives the idea that all knowledge was there for the taking and if people didn't want to give it up then it was going to be stolen and so I think we we always have to think about the histories of knowledge extraction and also the accountability that goes with knowledge. But I do I do have a lot of a lot of appreciation for what libraries do even within their li- limited capability, but also I have a lot of belief in what libraries can do when you have indigenous and other marginalized peoples at the center of those decisions rather than at the whim of other people's decision making. I really appreciate you welcoming us to lean into this complexity, this reminder that there's no simple narrative that we can fall on. And it is important to complicate our understandings of libraries and of the world so that we can see it most clearly for what it is and all of its nuanced layers. And to take all of this further, you also offer an invitation for people to see literature in a more expansive way and for us to question what it even means, who gets to define this form of quote-unquote high art, and who that ultimately privileges or otherwise marginalizes. So I would love if you could take us through your thought process here, including how you would blur and question the binary between orature and literature when it comes to understanding Indigenous story traditions. Yeah, this is always something, it's always a, a good topic of discussion because, you know, the idea of literature is one that has a lot of cultural capital, but that cultural capital works with a lot of unstated presumptions, right? That certain kinds of writing are art and certain kinds of writing are trash, right? Mm-hmm. And 
people talk about their guilty pleasures in reading, which I don't understand. <laughs> I don't understand. <laughs> like, there's this need to feel guilty about what you're reading. Well, if you're reading something and enjoying it, why feel guilty about it, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm a literature professor. You know, I've got my my training in this work. Um, but I, I think so much of what we see as literature with a capital L, or however you want to define it, it's really rooted in particular kinds of you know, cultural supremacy emerging out of particularly the the Anglosphere, but you know other other Western European contexts, and you know more broadly based than that, but certainly historically has erased the contributions of indigenous peoples and others. So, to my mind, you know, our literature is what we say it is. It is the the inscribed and narrated and embodied traditions that communicate our understanding of ourselves and the world we belong to and the visions that we have about both. And they are communicated in whatever forms are meaningful to us. And so that could be in on paper, in books, in alphabetic text. It could be in basketry. It could be in carved cedar poles. It could be in very transient sand paintings. It could be in a lot of different ways. But the meaning is about what makes it literature and what makes it meaningful is what it what it does for us. And you know, if, if other people find meaning in that, that's fine. But it's actually about our meaning first, rather than always looking to kind of the arbitrary conventions of imperial cultures and their gatekeepers. So in terms of the the distinction between orature and literature, I don't really see like I, I think there are important things to keep in mind when we're talking about oral traditions and their their performance contexts and the fact that they're often they're most often presented in a community context, whereas oftentimes reading is a very individualistic practice. But in terms of the the important value of it or the important work that it does in the world, I think both do important things for, for us and they do important things for maintaining culture and maintaining language and maintaining histories. And they do it in different ways, but I think they're very complementary. I think there's a there's an idea that the oral precedes the literary and that the, the literary is somehow more sophisticated. And yet anybody who has done any work with traditional storytellers know that the sophistication of orature is really mind-boggling, often because it's also it requires so much of uh, people's memory, but also their ability to engage an audience in thoughtful ways and to kind of compel the audience to be part of that that experience and to also share in the creation of the story. So there's a there's a dynamism there that's really important. So yeah, I, I, I'm I'm always suspicious of a of a hard and fast division between the oral and the literary because I think they're better understood as complementary rather than oppositional. Mm -hmm. And speaking of literature, we can't really talk about this without also talking about the languages that it would be working through as the underlying tool of communication. To not presume that literacy in particular language 
is deemed superior to some others, although it has arguably been made to feel that way based on which languages are more important for people to learn, to be able to communicate cross-culturally in this day, and to be able to conduct business as what is valuable or more valuable to our global economic system. But we know that alongside and with biodiversity loss, there has been an aligning trend of language diversity loss, particularly place-based dialects and indigenous languages. So with your work being situated in indigenous literature, which I'm aware you would validate as showing up in all languages, native or non-native, but what comes to mind for you when you think about language loss and what that would mean for the impact of literature? Because I'm thinking, for example, about the limitations that that could impose, because there are particular worldviews and ways of relating to the world that are embedded within different languages. But I'm still processing this and would be curious to explore this subject with you. Well, you're absolutely right. And I think that's one of the dangers when we're talking about literature. What we're often talking about is is literature in English, right? And English embeds certain things just by virtue of its structure, right? Like it's a very thingifying language. It's very noun heavy. And most of the indigenous languages that I know of are very relational. They're very verb heavy. And so it's just a it's a fundamentally different way of relating to the world and to community. And so if what you're seeing as indigenous literature is all in English, then I think you're missing a really significant reality in terms of indigenous forms of expression. The unfortunate thing is that because there has been so much erasure or erosion of of indigenous languages, most indigenous writers today are writing in colonial languages. And a lot of us are, are language learners. I'm a, I'm a baby language learner, right? I, I, I know a little bit of Cherokee, and I'm not very good at that. Um, and that's a result of you know, generations of educational violence against my, my paternal family. And so you know, I'm, the, I'm the inheritor of, of that. So I think we, we do have to not be too self-congratulatory in being kind of Yes, all all these things are literature, and yes, these things are all great, but not also take into account the fact that we cannot only be speaking of English or French or other colonial languages, and that the conventions in indigenous literatures, indigenous language literatures, might be very, very different, and for good reasons. And so it's actually, it requires a lot more work from literary scholars to have a better understanding of indigenous literatures in indigenous languages. And that's that's an entire world, you know, that most of us in the field are very much at the beginning of taking into account. But it's it's really important. I mean, since I started taking Cherokee language lessons, I have a much better appreciation for just how different Cherokee is from English in terms of the structures of thinking, the philosophical concerns, the way you relate to the to the other than human world. It's just fundamentally different. And it doesn't mean that there's not there aren't ways to connect those, but it does mean that if we're spending all of our time on indigenous literatures in English, we're really doing a disservice to our nations 
by not engaging our own literatures too, right? Our own languages, even if they're not the ones we were raised with. And to pivot into your fictional work, I know you're guided by a few inquiries, two of them being, how might the world look different if we didn't start with the corrosive and simplistic binary of savagism versus civilization? And what would fantasy fiction look like with women, indigenous peoples, queer folks, and other stereotyped or marginalized communities at the center rather than at the margins, end quote. Because fiction stories are really entirely up to the boundless imaginations of their authors, perhaps it can be hard to critique any individual story as being wrong or problematic. But I do wonder about the additive and collective impact of the available fiction narratives out there, and especially their impacts for our younger generations that may be engaging more with these stories that could potentially disproportionately perpetuate certain tropes and worldviews such as the savagism and civilization binary that I would love to hear you talk more about. Yeah, well, I think I think it's entirely fair to critique imaginative writing, right? Like, I mean, I think any any kind of stories out there have impacts, and it doesn't mean that you have to dismiss them, and it doesn't mean that you necessarily have to set them aside. But I think we we have to bring a critical eye to all of these things, because they do have impacts, and they do limit people's horizons in a lot of ways. So I think, I think it's entirely fair to do that. And I think especially in forms of literature like fantasy fiction, which, you know, is not necessarily considered a a high art form by a lot of people, but it's a very widely read art form and it's a very widely viewed art form. So what's interesting is so much fantasy that you read isn't really all that imaginative. The basic structures of power are pretty intact from the structures of power around us. They're just kind of, they're given a fantastical veneer rather than actually kind of questioning anything. And so fantasy can challenge the world we live in, but very often it reinforces ways that we, a lot of people want to believe the world is. And so I think it's it's incumbent upon us to challenge fantasy to be more imaginative and to imagine otherwise and to give us different visions of possibility that don't presume indigenous deficiency and that don't presume queer exclusion and that don't presume a rigid gender binary, that don't presume an inherited royalty as the inevitable form of of governmental authority. I think it's important because we can't live in different ways if we can't imagine different ways. And that for me is what imagine otherwise is is all about. We have to be able to imagine differently before we can start to realize a different world. Yeah, I want to lean into this a little more and I have to admit that I read a lot of fiction as a child growing up and I want to say that that's probably the case for most people and that we read a lot more fiction when we're younger. But this is also the time when our minds and worldviews are more fluid for our, our abilities to be molded, which I think speaks to the power of fiction. But then also to contradict myself in that thought, I now have a hard time sitting down to read a full book cover to cover altogether. And when I do read, I tend to gravitate towards nonfiction 
because I have this probably false presumption that when there are so many problems and urgent crises in the real world, engaging with nonfiction is how I can best learn about these things and to see where our paths forward could lie. And I want you to push back on that and to speak to the power of fiction more, especially for adults, to help us feel and be able to envision alternate futures and the possibility of other ways of being. I would start by saying I'm not interested in anybody feeling somehow like they're doing something wrong by not liking fiction, Mm -hmm. right? I think we're all drawn to different kinds of stories. Maybe fiction isn't your thing. Maybe you just haven't found the fiction that is your thing. So I would I would encourage you to kind of keep your mind open but also not to not to feel bad if fiction isn't where you want to go. For a lot of us it is something we love. Honestly, when I'm relaxing, I tend to read nonfiction. Because I get so invested in the fiction, it's uh, it's a little stressful <laughs> for me. Mm-hmm. So, but I think there is a role for fiction, just like there's a role for any stories that connect to us. And I think a lot about what Octavia Butler, the black fantasist, said long before she died, because she was challenged on what good is science fiction to black people, and she had a really, really profound response. And I'm I'm not going to try to to paraphrase it, but it was it, in general it was to say, well, what good is any form of literature for people? Well, it, it's to help people think of different ways of being in the world and to understand that there are different histories too. So, what good is it? Well, it, it's a lot of good because it reminds us that we are more than the than the stories of violence and deficiency that were forced upon us. And so, for her, science fiction was. It wasn't just a, a compelling literary form. It was a literary form with deep and profound purpose because it it broke through an anti-Black story world that had kind of been forced down on so many Black imaginations and kind of insisted that there was only one way of of existing and imagining in the world. And she said no. And, you know, there were a lot of other Black speculative fiction writers as well, you know, some of them who were published, some of them who weren't. Uh, She wasn't the first, and she certainly wasn't the last. But I think I, I really return to her her thoughts on this because I think it's it's really important. You know, there there are lots of ways for us to exist in a very complicated and painful world. But for a lot of us, we we need to be reminded that there are different kinds of stories out there, stories that are ours, stories that are not determined by heteropatriarchy, that are not determined by white supremacy, that are not determined by settler colonialism, that are not determined by ecocide and capitalism, that those were never inevitabilities. Those were systems that were imposed and violently inflicted, but there's always been contestation. There have always been contrary voices, and we need those contrary voices now more than ever. Whether you're going to find the fiction that really just sparks that part of your imagination. I mean, the, the only way of knowing that is to is to keep trying. But if you don't find the fiction, there will be other stuff that does. And so mm-hmm. I would say just be kind to yourself. 
don't feel like you're you're doing something wrong by not loving <laughs> fiction. It may just be that you haven't found the right stuff yet, or it may just be that that's not your that's not your gig, and that's okay. Yeah, thank you for that gentle reminder and invitation. And to bring this to your work more personally, I'm curious about your process of creative writing. So when you're beginning to dream up a new narrative for a wonder work or speculative fiction, what do you hold front and center in your mind, as in what guides your creative process? And what are some of the deeper shifts and messages that you hope to seed in your readers that may be the common denominators across your work? Well, I wish I could say that I had a system, but I really don't. I'm a bit of a magpie in that, you know, story ideas kind of catch my eye and catch my imagination and then I grab them and then they just kind of they sit there and they they grow and they develop. And I I always want to bring the fullness of my self to my work and that includes all of the political concerns and commitments that I have. But it's really important to me to tell a good story first. And the good story will bring the politics with it. I don't believe there's any such thing as, as an apolitical story. I think it's always political. But I don't start by wanting to, to teach a lesson. Because uh, I, I also believe that you have, to, you have to have faith in readers and you have to trust readers. That if you're too directive at the start, you really lose the opportunity to tell a good story that could actually communicate important, complex issues. If you're trying too hard to teach a lesson, you're probably doing an injustice to the story, and you're probably doing an injustice to the lesson, too. Hmm. Well, we are nearing the end of our main conversation, but just as some takeaways, how would you like to invite our listeners to keep questioning our relationship with and conception of literature and Indigenous literature beyond this episode? And I also wonder if you have specific decolonial and liberatory libraries you recommend people check out as inspirations that are attempting to break the norms of how libraries may be predominantly structured and organized. Ooh, that second question is a really good one. Um, and the first one I would just say, you know, my PhD supervisor had a, a saying, she said, read promiscuously. And I think that's probably the best thing you can do. Read read widely. Listen promiscuously as well. I mean, not all knowledge is going to be in written form. Be open to other people's stories. Be open to other ways of being in the world. And oftentimes, I think that will just spark the imagination and really pull you along. You know, one library I would encourage folks to look up is Huihua Library at UBC, um, where I teach, which is a community-focused library at the university. It's one of the very few indigenous libraries at a university campus in North America. And it's has a completely different classification system. It's based on the Brian Deere classification system, not Dewey Decimal. So it's very much engaged with and responsive to indigenous ways of categorizing knowledge. And it's adaptive to different cultural regions as well. So I would I would just encourage folks, if you have a chance to come to UBC, to Musqueam Territory and, and check it out to do so, or just to, to look it up online, because there are some really important there's important work happening and a lot of really awesome indigenous librarians who are trying to 
do exactly that work. And I think the more we can support them and their efforts, the better. This may be a difficult one for you to answer, but what has been an impactful book that you've read or publication you follow? Oh, probably the most, one of the most impactful things I've ever read, well, in in a long time, certainly for my career, is a book called Red on Red, Native American Literary Separatism by uh, Muscogee Creek writer and scholar Craig Womack, where he really grounds the idea that our nation-specific interpretations of our literary traditions are really important and that continues to inform and uh and inspire me Mm. what is a personal motto mantra or practice you engage with to stay grounded so imagine otherwise is my my personal motto that's the main one but my mom also had a saying sometimes it's better to be kind than right and I try to keep that firmly in mind, especially in these very, um, very ungenerous and unkind times. And what is your biggest source of inspiration at the moment? My family, and not just my my husband and my dogs, but my extended family, who I think they have they have stepped up on so many things and in so many ways that I didn't expect or anticipate, especially because I I recently lost my mom. And it actually brought me a lot closer to my family. And I actually thought it would take us farther apart. So I think that right now, that's that's a source of a lot of of inspiration and joy. Mm. Well, I'm sorry for your loss, but I'm glad to hear that this has been something that's brought your family closer together. And for now, Green Dreamer, we are wrapping up here. But to learn more and stay updated on Daniel's work and myriad of books and publications, you can head to danielheathjustice.com. And Daniel, thank you so much for being here with us and so generously sharing your teachings and learnings. What final words of wisdom would you like to leave us with as Green Dreamers? I would actually just say my mom's philosophy. Sometimes it's better to be kind than right. I think we we do a lot of harm in the world by trying to be right at the exclusion of understanding other people's struggles. And sometimes kindness can actually get us to to better places. Uh, doesn't mean that we tolerate everything, and it doesn't mean that we that we don't challenge violence and and abuse and cruelty. But it does mean that sometimes kindness is the the best way of doing that. This episode of Green Dreamer was brought to you by listeners like you. And to be honest, we cannot keep the show going without more direct support. So if you value independent media and counterculture conversations like this, you can help to sustain and co-create the future of this show 
with a donation of any amount at greendreamer.com support. Without a media network behind us, we also rely entirely on human-to-human word-of-mouth sharing so that our extensive library of episodes can inspire and reach more people. So if you get the chance to share your favorite episodes with loved ones or to write us a five-star review in the podcast app, this all helps us so much as well. Green Dreamer is a proud partner of Kaliapea Foundation, which shares our vision and understanding that ecological, cultural, and spiritual renewal are interdependent. The song featured in this episode is Tear Down the Wall by Forest Vale. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production manager is Tammy Gunn. Our transcript editor is Janice Cantieri, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Take care, and I will catch you soon in the next episode. <laughs>